When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. That was the poem that I really connected with for a long time. My mom would always say, home is where the heart is. We moved around a lot when I was a kid. In that journey of trying to belong, I kind of took that poem, Diaspora Blues, and kind of shifted it around to where I want to go and what I want to emanate. So I ended up writing a poem of my own that reflected that, and it was called Enough. So here we are, foreign enough to be foreign at home, home enough to be home in the foreign. And with that, somehow I have come to see when I am at home in my heart, I am always enough for everywhere. Somebody said it was like a seatbelt. I go, no, it's not. It's like headlights. Because with seatbelts, yes, as greater society, we're all going to have to take care of you. You're taking the acute pain of not wearing a seatbelt. If you turn off your headlights, you're going to put me in danger because now I can't see you. I'm going to take the acute pain as much as you are because we're going to have a collision. So I think a vaccine is I'm doing it for you. I'm putting my headlights on so you can see me. I'm taking the vaccine so you don't get it from me. We're all holding hands here. And guess what? You have access to vaccines and boosters. Like, that's the point, is you're living in a society, and we do have to think of others. It's consumption media. It's not social media. But I just became increasingly curious about those kind of side effects. You know, I started realizing that's not really what's making me happy. That's not making me fulfilled. It's not really fitting my values. And so I looked around and said, a lot of people are struggling with this, and a lot more are going to struggle with this because of how much the digital world controls our lives and the information we receive and the sort of echo chambers and bubbles we get isolated into. And it just became increasingly clear to me that there's a need to tackle this problem and I would like to be part of the solution. We got ourselves as a country into this more or less dichotomy somehow. Should we have more policing or should we have less policing? Should we defund or abolish? And it was just not a useful conversation because it's not where most people are. The truth is people want a different and better. People on the left and the right, they want to be safe. They know that the current system is not set up for that, particularly not for minoritized communities. So what we're proposing is something that's different and better. I mean, there's no way to say this except that the current policing structure in America was created in a different time and for a different purpose than what's needed now. At least three generations were born in slavery and got children in slavery. It was very difficult to see that very documented because it was administration of inventory. During the research, we found the name of the plantation director. And when I saw the papers with his name on it, I knew that our surname was derived from his name. So you know there's a connection to see those papers and his signature, knowing he must be an ancestor. It's a strange feeling. You don't have the feeling that you can be proud of him because he was the owner. So you have a double feeling about that. When I was a kid, I used to get told, why are you trying to talk white? What does that mean? I'm just speaking. Or when white kids get told, why are you trying to act black? 
well, what does that mean? There isn't a way to be or behave that's connected to a color, in my view. But I think there are some cultural norms that exist. And I, I wouldn't say that I was being disingenuous, but I did feel there were parts of my culture and parts of myself that I couldn't bring to the table because they might be judged negatively. Now, whether or not I felt that was correct or not, obviously I didn't and still don't. Think so much around some of the problematic people origin story, so isolated and made to feel exceptional. So much so that he betrays his own people. Because I think that's what happens when you believe in exceptionalism, you do everything you can to protect it. You can't let anybody in because if you let anyone in, you're not exceptional anymore. You can't be the only one if there's other people. So you gatekeep, you keep it small. So, you know, if you don't want to become that villain, again, everyone has something is extraordinary, but it's not based on just limiting yourself to being the only person. When I'm talking to patients, you have to meet them where they are. It's really just having fact-sharing conversation, respecting their choices and opinions, even though it can be very difficult for me sometimes. And taking care of people, that gets me further than judgment and trying to get them to where I want them to be because it's not about that. And so when I do open the door and I am more understanding, folks will come back with more questions and with different things that they've heard. And oftentimes they do get to where I hope they get to, which is doing the best thing that's for them and their health and their family's health. What is the point of the show? Should it be a hobby or should it be a job? It eats into something. There's a sacrifice to make this show. But I think to keep my head in the game, it just can't be more of the same. If you look at stats on business, less than 1% end up being profitable or grow or scale. Like a lot of people have great ideas, but to keep going, especially when it feels like you're not moving forward, that's what differentiates a, a successful brand from one that just never sees the light of day. And if we go back to our original why for all of this, it was to provide a platform for people to tell their stories so that folks could get a better sense of what someone else's experience is like. And I'd say we totally blew that out of the water. When I look at the types of people we've talked to because they've wanted to be a part of it, we've done an amazing job. Honestly, like I still, I fight back against this. Like people think we're bigger than we are, but we're not an Asian podcast. Like we happen to be two Asian people, but this is an American podcast. I know a lot of people think like master done and over and they definitely are for a lot of us, but in terms of service industries and entertainment, like if you take an extra eye and look around, we're all wearing masks. So yeah, that has not ended. And I think that probably won't end anytime soon just because we've realized these are bodies we're putting out into a stage and they're human bodies. And if we could find a way to make sure they're protected, of course we'll do that. We love our actors, we love our performers, and it's an easy thing for us to do. Privilege is occupying more space than is reasonably allotted for one person. I think it didn't hit me until I was much older and I was like, wait, I'm not asking for more pay for a job because that's what someone told me to do. It's because I do think I deserve double what you offered. And it's not scary because what's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to say no. I started doing stand-up. 2001, 9-11 happens. I started doing a bunch of community activism work. There was suddenly this massive demand for Muslim speakers to just calm down scared white people churches, synagogues, libraries, candlelight vigil events, college campuses. I would get invited to be a speaker on Islam. Tell us why we shouldn't be scared. And it's a fucked up framing in retrospect, but obviously I understand that this is a civilizational flashpoint and arguably the dynamic between the so-called Muslim world
world and the so-called West are really cultural fictions. Like, when will Muslims in Europe integrate? Yes, like, have you heard of Bosnia? Do you realize that the mayor of London is Muslim? There's all these cultural, legal, governmental fictions propagated. This is a big question I wonder all the time. Who controls the rhythm of the algorithm? I went to a pretty diverse school, but I was one of three Muslims. And so everyone's like, what is on your head? From 14 to 26, covering my hair was this secret weapon. I knew what people were thinking, right? That I was going to be shy or I was from a faith that doesn't appreciate and support women. All the assumptions people might have when they see someone who overtly expresses their religion, right? And I loved it. I was like, I get to change every perception you have about me. And it was a sense of confidence. And I also think as a woman, it really pushed that type of attention away from me that felt very important and protective. And so I all of a sudden had all these ways of controlling my narrative. If I'm working at an event, it is with a bunch of people who are often traveling in from different places. And the vaccine absolutely changed the level of comfort like that. I'm even willing to go and do them now. And I missed them. I didn't realize how much I missed them because I had gotten so used to virtual. And then I did that first in-person event again. And it's like, oh, that in-person laughter is amazing. It's like, oh, this is what that energy feels like. This is how you can feed off of the audience and the back and forth and things like that. So for me, having the vaccines and also continued boosters is the safety of the family but also this helps me feel more comfortable with being able to do that. I look at Crazy Rich Asians as like a sci-fi movie, right? We have our big fantasy blockbuster movie. Our work is done. That's bullshit, right? But the power of representation is that Crazy Rich Asians open the door for more Asian American stories. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is that we need more stories for people of color because those stories then fuel the narratives that help people get registered to vote. I've really started thinking a lot about representation. For little Asian kids like us growing up in the South, to see someone that looked like you on the screen, super important. Okay, I think we're past that moment where representation matters more now. Where Crazy Rich Asians and Black Panther wins, appeal to mainstream audiences was something never mm. seen. I need the white person to see the Asian story. I need the Asian yeah. person to see the black story. And so representation matters on a lot of fronts. When I wrote the book, I realized that I was going to be exposing my entire family to something pretty horrific. It's not that this horrific situation isn't happening. I'm just the one being torn up inside out by this every day. All I'm doing is naming the pain. I'm not making something up here. I'm just saying when you support this virulent racist who is going to inevitably bring harm to me and my community and the grandson that you love more than anything in this world, when you do this, it breaks my heart. I remember saying to my husband, if I write this book, it's really going to hurt because it's not a comfortable truth. And we finally got to this place where he was like, you're just going to have to tell your truth and then we'll just have to deal with whatever the fallout is. Do you guys ever think back about things that happened in your childhood? Maybe some of those interactions were like born out of racism? Yeah. Once and I'll, I'll connect that with an adult. That's what I think she did really well because she tells the story through the eyes of a little girl who doesn't really understand that Mira wasn't welcome because she wasn't white. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I know these things will happen to my daughter. And I, yeah, that, that was one of the pages where my eyes started looking because I know that's going to happen. And I can't 
you can't protect from that happening, right? You just kind of have to arm them with the knowledge and the confidence. So a graphic novel that I did in 2006 called American Born Chinese. And my dad, he said he liked it, but I don't know if he totally understood it though. Because that's one of the things about being an immigrant's kid is that your experience and your parents and your grandparents' experiences are like three completely different experiences in three completely different kinds of worlds. So we had conversations about it, but I never really got the sense that he knew where I was coming from. But there are things about what he went through that I would never in a million years be able to understand either. This is a very intensely personal book. As much as there is a sort of universality of American-born Chinese, it's also something where you see Jin Lun Yang wrestling with these ideas himself. That's what makes it special. It's his own personal journey, how he probably thought of himself when he was growing up. Everyone on the other side of this argument in our society could just read this book. It is about her specific family, and it's about Vietnam and the Vietnam War. And there's something special and unique to how focused it is. But this is the same story as someone leaving Honduras or Guatemala. Every American has some piece of this in their heritage. It's such an American story. I remember someone seeing my work and they asked me, why do you only draw white people? At first I was like, what are you talking about? I got like really defensive and then I stopped and I thought and I was like, I do only draw white people. It really kind of put a mirror to me. And I don't, I was like, why is that? And I think it was this thing where it was like, I mean, is that that internalized racism? Is it because I grew up primarily in the Midwest? That I think it's just, that's the culture. That's what I grew up around. It's just like, I didn't have that opportunity to see myself. We're doing this work backwards. We're thinking a lot about inclusion at our meetings, at our boardroom tables, but inclusion starts at our kitchen tables. It starts in our homes. It starts in our communities. You want people to change their behavior at work, but you expect people to shatter stereotypes. You expect people to be authentic and empathetic. And yet the reality is two thirds of white Americans are still self-segregating and the numbers are very similar for black Americans. So if you aren't building cross-cultural relationships, if you aren't actively thinking about how you can learn about a lived experience that is not your own, how do you expect to show up at work differently and show up as somebody who wants to be a more inclusive leader? Sometimes it's so easy to be a part of the flow and react every single minute. Like if we as individuals, as a part of a community that wants to move forward, I think we all have to do the due diligence of asking, well, what do we want to do with this? Where do we want to go? How do we want to bring collectively our community, our people around us? And it's not to say we're ignoring by any means all the things that's happening, but we recognize that it's also a larger systemic issue that has perpetuated for aeons and aeons, talking about school shooting, racism, discrimination, all these things. Well, we do see individual instances where it surfaces and comes to life. We also acknowledge that this is a very large thing that I think requires also large conversation. I'm a firm believer that everyone has a chip on their shoulder and it's beautiful and it is specific to them. Going back to my life experiences, I've had the most heartache in my life because of gender inequity. Because I think all through my life, I've been less than. Less has been expected of me. I got less opportunity. I had to fight to get every single thing. You know, I think that's one of the reasons I started YouTube in 2010, was there was no one else that looked like me. And it wasn't only this exciting, ooh, this is really cool, but it was definitely that chip off my shoulder of like, well, there should be. And so I'm right. going to make it. You know what people on the black side have heard for a while? 
Obama is president now, so that's a great. Nothing point. else is a problem, <laughs> right? And that's you've got Halle point. Berry won the award in early two thousands. You have Michael Jordan and all these beautiful black people doing runway, and so there should be no. Like, we are united in this struggle as Black and Asian people to recognize the BS of people trying to leverage the anomalies that are successes from our communities as some way to cover up the real stuff that's going on to our communities as a result of being locked out of certain things. Don't ask yourself why you're feeling a certain way. Just ask what you're feeling. Just ask what because why becomes a judgment. And I think people just don't listen. There need to be silences and you need to give people room to run. My style has gotten better because I've let people talk more. If you make all your points, you leave nothing for the other person to say. You gotta ask something and leave something and give them some rope so that they can have some fun instead of trying to be a know-it-all and I wanna show you all these things I know. It's like you get to a certain point, maybe you're just confident of going, well, I already know what I know, now I wanna know what you know. Yeah, first day of kindergarten and I remember being in line and this kid in front of me who, you know, I remember his name to this day, I turned around, looked at me and asked me, are, are you poor? Yeah, and I just remember like the feeling, huh? Like, I didn't know how to handle it. So, you know, I let my mom know it. And that was, I guess it's the cliche of everyone has one. It's like when you, when you really discover what it is to be black, that you're black, you know, it's like, okay, that was that moment where it's like, oh, this is what we're up against. And I do remember my mom explaining to me, this is something you're going to be facing, but you got to be proud of who you are. Definitely, in the beginning, I had no intention whatsoever that what I was practicing would lead to this. But martial art has a very, very deep meaning as far as my life is concerned because as an actor, as a martial artist, as a human being, all type of knowledge ultimately means self-knowledge. You see, I do not believe in styles anymore. I do not believe that there is such thing as like a Chinese way of fighting or the Japanese way of fighting or whatever. So styles tends to not only separate men because they have their own doctrines and then the doctrine became the gospel truth that you cannot change, you know. But if you do not have styles, if you just say, well, here I am as a human being, how India can I express myself totally and completely? I want to think of myself as a human being because under the sky, and under the heaven, there is but one family. It just so happened that people are different. I can only observe it through literature, and the pop culture of Bollywood and Tollywood aren't going to show it to you. The bias of my lack of being Indian but being Indian is another thing that drew me into this book. I go out and I do these school visits and I talk to kids, and so many kids want to be artists. They want to be graphic novelists. They want to make comics. And how powerful is it for me to stand there and say, this is the kind of story that you have to make in order to be standing in this space? Or is it more powerful for me to say, I've made Pashmina and a book about sharks and a book about time travel, right? I am here in this space and I'm telling you that whatever you imagine and whatever you want to pursue, you can do that.
We want them to be able to pursue whatever they dream. I wasn't thinking about an audience. I wasn't thinking how it was going to be received. It was a pure outpouring of just whatever came to me. And so when it started getting a wider audience, I was initially taken aback when people were like, why isn't he addressing his heritage? Or why is he whitewashing these characters? Is he dodging the issues or something? But it definitely wasn't the case, at least not consciously. I was rebelliously and ambitiously giving myself the task of addressing those criticisms, but also maybe not exactly giving those critics or readers maybe the book that they were looking for. I wanted to do something that still felt true to my own style and personality and the work that had gone before. And so I wanted to see if I could fuse those two ambitions. And I think that was the starting point for shortcoming. He starts writing down a note to his daughters. This could be the last thing I tell them. And there's something in that moment. I, I read it like two or three times. It sat with me all week. And you hear this all the time, right? When you're on your deathbed, it is not going to matter that you did one more PowerPoint, that you did one more whatever. All that's going to matter is the people that loved you. And I talk about, you know, some of the best moments were just kind of doing the stupid things with you that made it worth it. And, and I don't know. I know that wasn't the takeaway of the book, but it's like the happy ending is that realization. The happy ending is the, yeah, none of this other shit matters. There's no one right way to be Asian American. You know, and hearing about the diasporic experiences of others who are trying to grapple with culture, figure out what to keep and carry, what to relate to. These stories are about healing, both for the person that I'm talking to, but they become healing for the audience and healing for me. And I think what has inspired me has just been the commonality and depth of experience that is so very human and universal. Before my first visits, I really had that Wakanda vision in my mind, you know, this Black utopia almost, where Black people had found not only wealth, but like success and comfort. And when I visited for the first time, that was kind of obliterated. Greenwood was very highly diminished. Not only the massacre destroyed in 1921, but urban renewal destroyed much of the community decades later. And more striking than that for me, the very first time I visited, it was actually the anniversary of the race massacre. We were having a small vigil right there in the middle of the neighborhood, and there were three, four, five hundred people streaming past us to go to this baseball game. Even in Tulsa, the place where this happened, this stuff was not widely known, or at least not being widely acknowledged. And I felt like writing something that could really center the story, ground the story and the people there would be honestly a valuable contribution to our nation's understanding of itself. Graphic memoirs hit and resonate so much harder. Knowing that it's rooted in the truth and it's not a fiction makes the story punch a lot harder. The moment that they told their mother to shut up. The right. moment that they didn't fit in. It's like poetry in the sense that you can linger frames and sequences can just sit with you and you're left with it. You get a real feel for how complex and contradictory their mentalities often are. There's a richness to it because they're so in touch with their own emotions and are so talented as artists who bring that to the surface and showcasing their own sensitivities in their observations as well as you know, their ability to communicate that in a graphic form that really gives it a sort of unique power. So I got to a point in my late 30s where I had been around the block. You know, I'd worked in multiple countries on so many different types of businesses. And what I had just really consistently seen was that people of color were often left behind in the decision-making process. Where were we? I myself had struggled. There were so many times I can think of where folks who were tangibly doing less work than I was were getting ahead, were getting an easier time through 
And I just got to a point where I was like, you know what? I keep hearing the same narrative from leaders out there that they want to recruit, retain, and build better cultures for people of color. And they feel like we're not out there and they keep investing in junior level talent, which again, you should invest in. But what about the rest of us? There's a big disconnect. And so for me, building Hue was really about bridging that divide. I was a little kid and, and there was a street performer there. He was a mine. I just stood in front of him and just like watched him for like 20 minutes. And he's performing directly for me because there's really nobody else around him. He made me laugh. He made me sad. He almost made me cry. As a kid, I was like, man, this is a superpower. Like, how does he do that? And I was like, wow, I went through just an array of emotions. It was actually better than a sports hero ducking a basketball or a baseball. Because I was like, there's such an interesting connection that we all of a sudden have with no words, right? The idea of being some type of entertainer was like stuck there, right? In 2018, a group of friends, we went to go watch the championship game for the NCAA women's basketball. And we go into this bar, pretty empty, and we're just like, hey, can you change the channel? And they're like, oh, no problem. But they put us in the corner on the smallest TV, which was totally fine. And we proceeded to watch what ended up being like one of the best games of all time, in my opinion. And, you know, Arike hits this game-winning shot at the buzzer. To finish off this comeback from behind, we all just lost it. And we just mm -hmm. were high-fiving. And we were the only ones in the entire bar that were celebrating. And as we were leaving, my friends and I were just saying goodbye. And I was just like, that was the best game I've ever seen. And one of my friends said it would have been so much better if the sound had been on. It was at that moment that it really clicked. And right then, I said, the only way we're ever going to watch a women's sports game in its full glory is if we had our own place. News and journalism doesn't necessarily just have to be like chasing after the celebrities like red carpet style. It doesn't even have to be just like a clear cut appraisal of like whether this music is good or not. You can ask all these questions about like, well, what does it mean? And sometimes that in and of itself can be provocative. So I don't know if there was a moment necessarily where like I got in trouble, but, <laughs> but certainly like being in Atlanta opened my eyes up to all of the possibilities that exist when it comes to doing the work that we do. There's nothing that opens up your mind, even your heart, to new and unknown things than travel. Travel as much as you can. Go to places that are even a little bit outside your comfort zone, for sure. Travel has been the biggest joy of my life and just seeing new things, seeing things outside of our comfort zone, seeing new cultures has just been wonderful. When I did this joke, they thought I hated Malaysia. I didn't at the time of doing this joke. I mean, it was a fucking joke. Get a grip of yourselves. It still kills every time I do it. I mean, jokes are subjective anyway, right? But laughs are objective. As objective as you can get about a joke, it's objectively good just because it kills. I mean, it gets an applause break. So as long as the joke is funny and the audience is laughing and I shoot for like 80, 90% people laughing, then it's funny. Then I'll keep doing it. That's where the line is, if people laugh or not. Growing up, my mom taught me how to celebrate Diwali. We would still celebrate very festively, but it was almost like this quiet little thing that was just for us. I would get home from school, my mom would be lighting all of these candles, these dias that would float in water, and we would have every single light on everywhere. All the lights had to be on. Even to this day, as we live on our own, we light a bunch of candles, we make sure every light is on. We even put up white Christmas lights on our balcony and things like that, just to let people know what's going on. And these are traditions that I think we'll continue to do. 
as my daughter gets older, would want her to understand the significance of light over darkness, would make sure we celebrate with whoever's around. And the cool thing about Diwali is that I can't wait to add to the traditions that I learned from my parents. Like people say this a lot within like the people of color, like POC, like publishing space that like, it sucks that a lot of times when we do want to break into the industry, like you have to publish a memoir first about like your experience. I am part of that group, but like I personally had to, like not that anyone told me to, but like I really needed to do that. Like I think it was the first thing I had to do before I did anything else. Yeah, I, I feel like I've been needing to do this for a very long time and gave me not just making the book, but a lot of like the aftermath of the book gave me a lot of closure. India just, it's so drastic, the gap between those who have and those who don't. The amazing thing about it is you see these people, so many people on the street, small children, kind of terrible things, but they also have a lot of joy in them. And there's something really profound to learn in that, to experience that. There's billions of people in the world who live in fundamentally different ways from how we live. And you can't really get a sense of that until you're around it. And I think of all the reasons to go to India, that may be one of the most valuable. Figuring out exactly where I belong has been my greatest reckoning. Every role I've played, I've had to sort of ignore certain parts of myself or contort to fit this other image. And I really try to make it my goal every day to step on stage and bring everything that I am because I really believe that I can. The other side of that, which I've only really experienced playing Jasmine, is meeting kids and their parents who are mixed and them saying, my kid has never had someone to look up to. And now you get to be that person for them. And, and they can be any mixture of things, you know? And so that's the other side. It's like we're creating space for other people to see themselves as well. Seek things that challenge you to think differently in a new and better way. When people have had a different set of experiences, they will bring different facts different experiences yeah. and it causes you just to reflect and that's a hard thing to do too you got to slow it down i mean I, the greatest training i had over my career was the opportunity to work with people that have different mastery and we all want to make a difference the more senior i got the less i knew about the subject matter i was asked to engage in seek to understand and empower the people closest to the real knowledge source the people that do work every day instead of critiquing understand what is the process of seeking to understand instead of be right do right.